All right. So pastor and theologian John MacArthur discusses three ways that people kind of think about the world, uh, three ways that we view history. And the first one is the cyclical view. And this is really common in Eastern thought, especially Hinduism. And it's that, that there's just this great cycle of life, that you're born, and you die, and then you are reincarnated, and then you're born, and then you die, and then you're reincarnated, and there's this thing, and, and we're kind of like, well, we don't really believe that in our culture, right? However, it is making some moves in our culture, and you can see it by how often we use the word karma in our culture, which is straight Hinduism, and what karma is, is the more good karma you have, the higher life form that you come back at, uh, as or the worse your karma is, the the lower life form that you come back as, and this this cyclical view is this meaninglessness of life. Why do anything that much better other than the fact that you can enter a higher life form? But there's always that chance. Well, I'll just do a better job next time. There's really not. It's kind of a depressing worldview that we see. And this, the second view that we see, maybe more pervasively in our culture, is naturalism. And naturalism is a linear. Uh, if you look at like a linear view of um, life, however, it, and it looks like it's way different than the cyclical view. However, it has that same depressing end. We're just a cosmic accident. Nothing that you do really matters. History doesn't matter. The future doesn't matter because there's really nothing to matter other than just being as happy as you can while you're here. And this, this view is very depressing, very meaningless. But the biblical Christian worldview is completely different. The biblical Christian worldview sees Jesus Christ as the center of history. The center before and after everything culminates in Christ. It, it, it shows the sovereign purpose and plan of a creator God who has existed for all eternity and will exist for all eternity in the future. It shows that everything matters because Christ matters. Right? Everything uh, for all eternity, past, present, and future, it all matters because it all matters culminates with Christ. We believe that everything prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ was the working of God to that point to, to get that to go. It wasn't just something he just thought of, oh, I think I'm going to band-aid this, you know, man has sinned, and so I'm going to just band-aid this. No, it, all of history was full of purpose, and it worked up to the culmination of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the grave. And we also know that, that Christ is in control. That, that even though he died, he rose from the grave, and he, he's in control of everything. We, we, we see all of Scripture as pointing to Jesus Christ, pointing to his incarnation, his crucifixion, and the cross, and his resurrection three days later. And we like to talk about that, at least in solid biblical churches. We, we like to talk about Jesus Christ as he comes in in the incarnation, as he's born of the Virgin Mary. We like to talk about that, especially at Christmas time. We like to talk about the resurrection when it comes to Easter or even throughout our, our services and things like that. But what we don't talk about is his coming judgment. And that's something that a lot of pastors, a lot of churches really shy away from today. And today we're actually going to do just that. We're going to talk about the coming judgment and fulfillment of the Lord's return. Today we're going to talk about the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is certainly coming. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is a, a heavy message today. Uh, the day of the Lord is a fearful thing for those who are unbelievers. But for us who are believers, we do not need to fear the coming of the Lord, of the day of the Lord. We embrace it and we're excited for it. But God, 
as we learn about what the day of the Lord really means in the Bible, may, may we learn from this and may it spur us on to share the gospel with others. May it also spur us on to continue on, pressing on, persevering in the faith. God, may you speak through me. May you speak to us through your word, God. And we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word and to fellowship together. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, the day of the Lord is coming, and we are going to discuss three responses that we should have because that day is coming. And the first is you should be prepared because the day of the Lord is coming. You should be prepared. I'm going to read verse 1, starting off here. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So Paul starts off reminding this church, hey, while I was with you for that short time, we talked about the Lord coming back. You know, we talked about the times and the seasons, and so I don't really need to write anything else to you about that because I'll let you know that this is happening. And we can be sure that he likely referenced Acts 1-7 where uh, we see Jesus say, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Like, we don't know when this is going to happen. We don't know when the day of the Lord is coming. So, you know, we, we, we just got to watch what's going on and watch what's happening. And back to our verses, he uses those two words, and I underline it for you up here, times and seasons. And this Greek word for times is chronos, where we get the word chronological. Chronos, chronological. Uh, while the Greek word here, keros, uh, it, it refers to a specific and definitive point of time. And we're seeing the seasons. It's a time that has a specific beginning and a specific end. And he uses both of these to let you know that the day of the Lord is coming chronologically. It's going to be coming later. But it's not just an esoteric time period. It is a time period that has a hard stop and a hard stop, that, that, that it is something that will happen. And then moving forward, we see in verses 2 and 3, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So before we get into the meat of that, pack, uh, that, that passage, so we, he just throws the day of the Lord right in there without really packing any punch before that, and he, he kind of brings it right out. I want us to look at this timeline uh, to kind of know where we're at. And so we take a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of Scripture, which, which what that means is that we see here the day of the Lord up top, it is capped off, the capstones here would be the rapture of the church to start off, that followed by the seven-year tribulation, the 1,000-year reign, and then the white throne judgment um, would be the end of the day of the Lord. So if you see there, there's some good stuff, and then there's some really bad stuff in this day of the Lord. This day of the Lord is a time period of the judgment of God. And, and I want us to not necessarily get lost in all of the words there, all of that, but I just wanna, I want you to kind of see a big picture view. When we say the day of the Lord, we refer to this, and you'll see why it's a time period and not necessarily just a single day as we see it in Scripture. So it, it encompasses the good and the bad. It encompasses the judgment of the tribulation, the, the Armageddon that, that, that ends there as well. But it also includes the rapture of the church as well as the millennial kingdom, which is Israel's restoration. So we see some really good stuff as well. So the day of the Lord is also referred to as that day in Scripture. So you see in the prophets, a lot of times they'll say that day, and he's refer they're referring to the day of the Lord. And a lot of you may be like, well, I haven't really heard a lot about the day of the Lord. Like, I haven't heard a pastor really preach on this. It's just been something, maybe I read it when I was reading some scripture by myself. 
But the day of the Lord is mentioned in Amos, Joel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Malachi, Zephaniah, and alluded to or directly addressed in other books like Daniel and other ones. I mean, that is a ton of Old Testament books. Almost all the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets mention the coming of the day of the Lord. And so we see in Amos 5, 18 through 20, one of the negative sides of the day of the Lord here. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Hear the hopelessness in that. Wow, like you flee from a lion and you run into a bear. I mean, that's not exactly a, a step up. Or you think you finally got something to rest on and then you get by, bit by a serpent. So you can run, but you can't hide, right? The judgment of the Lord is coming for you in the day of the Lord. That is it's pretty tough scripture, pretty hard. And, and that is very common in the Old Testament prophets as you look at the day of the Lord. But then we also see some glimmers of hope. So let's read Joel 2, 31 through 32. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Here we see hope. And the day of the Lord. Now, praise God, we have hope today as well. Before the day of the Lord, we, we see this actually, this scripture also referenced in Romans 10, 13, that we have hope that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we can be saved now, before the rapture, before the day of the Lord starts, before the tribulation. How wonderful is that? But praise God, he's not done even after the rapture of the church. During that tribulation, he will still save. You'll see 144,000 of Israel that are sealed and saved and, and they will go out and be witnesses among the nations. God is so merciful that, that he even gives a second chance even to those who are left at that point. Yet most, almost all, will still reject the, the king of kings. So many say, let me see a sign, and then I'll believe, right? And, and even when Jesus was on earth, show me a sign. And then how many signs did Jesus, did, did Jesus show while on earth? How many people did he raise from the dead? Did he heal that were blind? Or, and what did they do? They explained it away. He does it by the prince of demons. He, or that really didn't happen. I'll just, you know, he's just kind of using some smoke and mirrors things. People don't believe, not because they don't see. We all see that there is a creation. We all see that there is a world. We all see that nothing never comes from nothing. We, 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 we all see the intricacy of a tree and, and its root system. Or we all see the intricacy of the, the sun and that we're the exact right distance from it so that we don't burn alive. Or... We're not too far to where we would freeze to death. We all see that. We all can observe that. God has given us tons of signs. That's why Romans 1 says that we all know that God exists. We're all born with the knowledge of God so that we are without excuse. But here's the thing. We are prideful in our hearts, and we want to, believe, we want to be our own God. We don't want to submit to the lordship of Christ. So the problem is not signs and wonders. The problem is the heart. The problem is that our heart is evil wants to do what it wants to do and not what God wants it to do. And we will see that in the tribulation when many will reject, even after watching the church raptured up, will continue to hate God and be against him. God's judgment, God's coming judgment is just as sure as God's salvation. My friends, God's coming judgment upon unbelievers is just as sure as the cross. So the cross is wonderful, and, and all of us can be saved if 
we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. But those who do not will not have salvation. We all have the opportunity, but not all of us will take that opportunity. My goal with talking about the day of the Lord here isn't to go through an exhaustive study of the day of the Lord. It would take us weeks, years probably to do an exhaustive study. Is it just that we pretty much have to go through almost every Old Testament prophet in order to go through the day of the Lord? But what I want us to take from this is that the day of the Lord, the coming judgment of the Lord, is not just an esoteric idea that church, the pastors just throw around or that, that, that churches just throw around, that it is infused in all of Scripture. If you believe the Scripture, you must believe in the coming judgment that is coming. However, sadly, there's been a liberal move, movement in our churches today. Uh, there's been this movement of not preaching the judgment of God, not preaching that other than just he's coming back, they may say that just esoterically, but not talking about the darkness of, of the wrath of God, just how, how scary the wrath of God is. And, and because of that, many young people have grown up not thinking there is a coming judgment. And frankly, they went so far, if you talk to many young people on college campuses who even grew up in conservative evan evangelical churches, and you ask them, do you believe in literal hell? Most will say, no. Or they'll be like, well, you know, they'll kind of add some things in that you can earn your way to heaven, almost in a purgatory kind of way. How sad is that? Because it's, it's just from Satan himself, because what does that tell us? That tells us that it's not really that necessary to share the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't really matter that much. Because the gospel must not be the only way to God, since you can do other things to get there. So there's no urgency to tell people, hey, the coming wrath of God is coming, and people need to hear about Jesus. How sad is that? The pages of Scripture continually affirm the coming judgment of God. So be prepared. Back to our Scripture today uh, in verses 2 and 3 here. We see that this day will come like a thief in the night, and his labor pains upon a pregnant woman. These two warnings are not for those who are prepared. We do not need to fear the coming of the day of the Lord. It will be a wondrous, wonderful and glorious day for us, as we talked about last week, the, the rapture of the church. How wonderful will that be for us as we meet the Lord in the air, as the trumpet blows, as the archangel cry, you know, you cries out, as their cry of command from Christ himself, and we meet the Lord in the air, and our, our resurrected bodies are given to us, the dead in Christ rise first. I mean, that is a great and glorious day for us. But after that, we see that it is not. It's a very dark and judgment, judgmental day. And so number one, it comes like a thief in the night. And this does not refer to the secretive nature of the day of the Lord because we just saw, I mean, the, the church is going to be raptured. It's going to be obvious that a lot of people are missing, hopefully more than what I think might be missing these days. I, I hope that we see more and more people come to Christ so that the rapture is not just a blip of just a few people that disappeared. I, I pray that there are a lot of people who are saved and who disappear, who are called or caught up in the air with Christ. But he references the thief in the night because he wants people to know that you need to be prepared. And here's the thing, you've got to prepare it before the thief comes. So if, if you have a home and you haven't secured your home, you haven't locked your doors, you haven't secured your home, and the thief comes, it's too late once the thief is in. You've, you've already been breached. Your house has already been breached. It's too late. You don't, you don't have time to get prepared at that point. You don't have time to get things ready at that point. It is too late. And so you need to make sure that your house is secure before the thief would come. In the same way, we must be prepared for the coming of the Lord. We must be prepared because Christ is coming to rapture the church, and we must be ready because John fourteen six lets us know there's only one way to be ready, and that is through Jesus Christ. 
We must have our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and believe in Him. If you have done that, you can be saved and secure under His watch. Number two, it comes as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. He wants this to talk about the finality. So, you know, obviously women, they have passive and active labor. I'll, I'll bust out the medicine aspect of that. In passive labor, you can, you can stop that. You can give some medication to try to stop that most of the time. But once you get to active labor, once you're about four centimeters dilated, there ain't nothing you can do. That baby is coming one way or another. And so whether it's coming vaginally or they're going to have to do a C-section, that baby is coming. So once the day of the Lord begins, once the rapture of the church happens, tribulation is coming, the day of the Lord, the judgment is coming. It doesn't matter what you do, the judgment is sure. And he says right before that, when people are saying there is peace and security, I want us to kind of finish this final point talking about these first couple of verses here. Many people today are saying there's peace and security, even though we see all of the, the issues in our world, even though we see sexual morality, godless behavior, atheism, all these things are going, going bad. But, but what is our culture saying? Our culture is saying we are progressive. We are progressing. We, can, we are free from the moral restraints of the Bible. We can do whatever we want to. Our world is even in a better place than it was 50 years ago because we have progressed as a society. There is complete moral freedom to do whatever you want to do and to watch whatever you want to watch and go wherever you want to go. But that is not real freedom, and that is not progress. That is regression. My friends, be prepared. No one knows the day or the hour, but we do know that it is closer today than it was yesterday, right? The day is sure to come, so be ready. Number two, you should be practicing because the day of the Lord is coming. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 for us here. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So Paul gives a, a list of imposing or opposing words here. Darkness versus light. Then we see sleep versus awake and drunk versus sober. So what does he mean by these comparisons? I'm going to go to the next slide there. That's where those are. So uh, what, what does he mean by, by these comparisons? And he means that those who are believers should be practicing and preparing for the coming of the Lord. It's not a fearful work for us. We're not in darkness. We are in the light. So we shouldn't fear the coming of the Lord. We should be excited about the Lord coming, as we talked about last time. However, Paul wants to drive home the fact that we need to be practicing righteousness until the rapture of the church. We need to be living for the Lord. In a world full of idolatry, drunkenness, immorality, godlessness, we should be practicing righteousness. We are children of the light, and we should live like that. We should live according to the light, as Psalm 119, 105 says, right? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? His word is that. And so we need to be in the word as I talk about each week, how important the word of God. It is sufficient, all sufficient for all of life. We need to be, he will direct our steps with the light of his word and the Holy Spirit that is within us. Getting back to those same things we see here that we are to be awake and sober. And both of these point to the alertness of the believer. We need to be alert and awake because Here's the thing, a drunk man is unaware of the dangers that he may face. 
those who are drunk are cause much damage to themselves, their families, to other people, to cars, to property, to all kinds of things, and they don't understand how dangerously blind that they are when they are drunk. It's as, as, it's as if they are sleepwalking, but not us as believers. We need to be walking sober-minded, alert, because we are children of light. And so in context, when we see these, these comparisons, you know, darkness, sleep, and drunkenness, what all of those are, are, are really literally referring to here, or figuratively, I guess I should say figuratively referring to, is people that are lost. People that don't understand what the gospel really is. They, they don't have the light of the word. They're walking around in spiritual darkness. It's as if they are drunk because they, they can't see where they're going. And what they do, it, it's like a drunk man. They're stumbling over everything because their truth is relative and, and, and doesn't stand for anything. And so they, they make awful decisions and bad decision after bad decision. And they continue to go to bad places and do things that just continually leave them empty. However, there's so much to glean from the literal understanding of drunkenness here, too. This term can really refer to all kinds of vices that may blind us, right? And we have to watch these even as believers so that we do not fall into some of these things and so act like those who are blinded and drunk. Alcohol most certainly does this. Drunkenness puts one to sleep. But we can see drug use, carnal, use, car- carnal lust of the flesh, greed, and more. Those who are focused on the things of this world are blind. It's as if they're, they're sleeping. It's because they're not thinking of the things that are above, of heavenly things that matter. All the things of this earth are going to pass away, but Jesus and his word will never pass away. We see this in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So when he's talking about heaven and earth, he's talking about the heavenly bodies, and we see this in Revelation during the tribulation, during the judgment of God. We see the, 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 the sun is darkened. Uh, we, we see stars that are thrown from heaven. We see horrible things that happen during that time. Everything that you see will pass away. There will be a new heavens and a new earth eventually after the millennial reign of Christ. It, it, it will all be redone, remade, recreated. Praise the Lord for that because our creation is groaning. Praise God that he will write all those things. So everything that you see, everything that you, that you desire on earth, it will all pass away but Christ and his word will never. Do we really live that way? Do, do we read his word? Do we pray? Do, do, we, do we put all of our emphasis so much on Christ that if somebody looked at your life and they were like, well, what, is, what does he value most? What, what does she value most? Would they say, absolutely, it's Jesus. It's the word of God. It, it's, li- it's righteousness. Like That's what they value most. Or would they say they value music more? Or they value you know, a, a certain hobby more, or they value a certain substance more, or they value a certain show more, or they value, is that convicting to us? And I think we all have to, to know that the lust of the flesh, we still, although we are as believers, if we are in Christ, we're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, we still have this flesh that desires fleshly things, and it's so easy to be torn, and to, 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 to be taken down the wrong paths, or even if it's not even an evil thing, to be so hyper-focused on the things of this earth, that are going to pass away and not focused on the things that will last forever. Moving on to verse 8, Paul says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Does that sound familiar? I, you know, a lot of people miss this, that we have a couple pieces of armor here, even in First Thessalonians. You remember the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And so we have two pieces of armor here. Number one, he, he talks about the breastplate of faith and love. 
This is referred to the, as the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians uh, 6.14. Yet we understand that righteousness is attained through Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He works through faith as an internal working of our salvation inside of us, and he overflows with what? Love for him and for others. So it's great how he shows what righteousness is here as faith and love. Number two, the helmet of salvation. Ephesians, we all see that in Ephesians six seventeen, And he adds the word hope here because salvation is a sure thing. We have hope in Christ. It is a sure thing that is coming. I love um, this quote here by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And they're, they're bar- borrowing from a guy named Edmonds as they state this. But the helmet and breastplate defend the two vital parts, the head and the heart respectively. With the head and the heart right, the whole man is right. The head needs to be kept from error and the heart from sin. I find it interesting that out of all those pieces of armor that he could have referenced, um, that he references later, actually, when he writes Ephesians, uh, we, we see him mention these two here. And it reminds me of um, my son. He's taking karate right now. It's called Total Christian Karate, which is pretty cool. It's online. And uh, it's taught by a Christian brother in Tennessee, actually. And it's taught through a biblical worldview. They memorize scriptures. It's really cool to watch him do, you know, memorize scripture as he does karate moves. But there's a really big drawback to this karate thing. And that karate thing is that it requires practice. And if you need to practice something, you've got to have someone to practice it on. And being the biggest person in our family, I was voted most likely to get hit by my son. And so, so you know, now I, I actually have to be that person. That someone in our house ended up being me. But thankfully, his instructor was kind enough to send something in the mail. He sent a couple of pads for my forearms, for my shins, the two most likely places that my son is going to try to waylay me. And so that, that was very, very kind of him. And I cover these two areas because they are the most likely that I'm going to get hit. And Paul, in the same way, he encourages us to have, if you're going to have any pieces of armor on, there are two pieces of armor that he just told us to have, and that was protect our head and our heart, the, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. So we need to always make sure we protect our, our head because it's so easy for Satan to get into our heads with false philosophies. We even started with those two different worldviews that are not obviously biblical worldviews with a cyclical worldview or a naturalistic worldview. It's so easy for these thoughts to get in our head, things to, to, to just get twisted and us to start to have postmodern thinking or relativism or all of these things. That, so we need to protect it with a helmet of salvation, knowing that Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. And then we also need to have the breastplate of righteousness because our heart can be so easily deceived. It can be so quickly drawn into sinful acts and places. And so we have to protect our heart, protect our mind. And moving forward to our final point, we see that you should be persevering because the day of the Lord is coming. You should be persevering because the day of the Lord is coming. Let me go ahead and read verses 9 and 10 first. For God has not destined us for wrath. Amen. That is a good verse. I'm going to read that again. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, that is good. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, I want to be very, 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 very obvious here. These two verses do not apply to you if you're not a Christian. 
you are destined for wrath. The day of the Lord, the coming judgment, is coming after you, and hell will be your reward. And I know that sounds incredibly bad. It's really nice and sweet to preach the first part. If you are saved, you're not destined for wrath. Salvation is yours. You will be with Christ forever and all eternity. For all eternity. That, that is what I love to preach. I love to preach that. I love to preach that to myself. I love to preach that to you all because that is a glorious message, and it is 100% true if you are in Christ you have a guarantee of salvation. The Holy Spirit seals you as a believer. He will not lose those who are His. But if you're not His, you're not in. There's no other way. And there, you are destined for wrath at that point. And you are headed for an eternity in hell. My brothers or sister, if that is you, I pray that you repent and you turn from your wicked ways, that you repent of your sins, you turn to Christ who died on the cross, as we see here. What does it say? Who died for us. Whether we awake or asleep, that means whether we passed away before He's not going to forget about you. The dead in Christ will rise first. They will meet the Lord in the air, as we saw in our last sermon. What an amazing promise of God's sovereign protection upon us as believers. We are not destined for wrath if we are in Christ. We are saved by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. I pray that, you know, Paul presses in to, to, to relay the security a believer has in Christ. And so often we can doubt that. We can kind of be like, oh, well, we just see, see God as this God that just crosses his arms and looks at us and scowls. And it's like, oh, I can't believe it. I, I don't know if I'm going to let that guy in or not. No, he, he doesn't look at us that way. He sees us through the lens of Christ. All of our sins are, are on that cross. I've been rereading a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And it's so good to kind of remind you of how Christ sees you. Or another book called Deeper by him as well. And it's so wonderful to see the all-sufficient, atoning sacrifice of Christ. We must see it as it really is. He sees you as his son or daughter if you are in Christ. And all of that bad stuff that you've done and all what you do even now and what you will do in the future was all placed upon that cross. Nothing surprises him. Sometimes we sin and we're like, God's disappointed in me. It's like God knew you were going to do that but when he died for you on the cross. He's not disappointed. Yes, did sin have to put him on the cross? Does he hate sin? Absolutely. That's why he killed his son. Like, that's why God the Father poured out his wrath upon Christ on the cross because of that sin. You need to see it as a big deal. Don't take it as a license to, not, to sin, whatever you do, do whatever you want to. That sin required a price. You should feel conviction and repent of that sin. But God's not looking at you any differently after you repented of that sin than before you did that. So don't live in shame and in guilt all the time because Christ took that on the cross and we need to live that way. But if you're not in Christ, yes, that wrath that, that God put upon Christ on the cross, that crucifixion, that horrible death, you, you would you'd probably rather have that than have hell the rest of eternity, right? I mean, you, you will suffer the wrath of God because God loves his children way too much to allow sin to continue on. Does, does anybody look at this earth and say, this is a great heaven? I love it. Like, everything is perfect. This is how, no, God loves us enough to say, hey, I'm, I'm fixing all of this. I'm righting every wrong. There will be no more sexual morality, sin, horrible rape, murder, incest, all that. It won't be anymore. When you get to heaven, no more tears, no more pain. He loves us too much to allow us to be in that. I love what theologian D. Michael Martin alluded to as well here. It says, all believers will be saved from God's wrath because of Christ's sacrifice, even those who died at their post, even those who died as they ran the race set before them. You know, even, even those who had passed on, they will be raised to new life with Christ. And 
It reminds me of, of my wife's favorite verse, a couple verses, I guess, here in, in 2 Timothy. As Paul comes to the end of his life, he says this, and it's just a wonderful, you know, end of your life type of verse. It says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. With the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. All of us will die at our post, my friends. All of us who are in Christ will die at our post, albeit unless we are here when the rapture comes, which I'd love if that was just now. There we go. Yeah, one of these days. Pastor Kenny tried to do it all the time. Never happened when he did it either. But, you know, it, I know, he, he'll never actually probably do it right then. He waits a couple seconds just to, you know, not let me be right. But, <laughs> um, but if we look, you know, our death is not the end. Uh, our, our death does not have the final word in our lives. It's only the beginning of our eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. Which brings us to our final verse in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. My friends, we have hope in Christ, and that should encourage us to encourage other believers to help or to persevere along with us as we walk, walk with Christ. She gave us joy and peace, even though we fight the spiritual battles on earth, even when we see people going astray left and right. It sh- we, and it also, also should encourage us to preach the gospel to those who are lost, those in our lives, those in our workplaces, those in our communities, that the day of the Lord is coming for them in judgment, not in a good, not in a good light. But for us who are in Christ, it's coming as a blessing. As we come to a close, I want to warn I, I, I urge you to warn those around you to make sure they are prepared for what is coming. I know it's not kosher to talk about things like this with people around you, but, but, but I, I urge you to love people enough to have those difficult conversations because they need to hear that the Lord is coming. And as believers, may we persevere as we practice righteousness, as we continue in the power of the Lord and await a crown of righteousness that awaits us, my friends. I mean, how amazing is that? For Christ has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the cross. Lord, if anyone here has not placed their faith in you, God, I just pray that they do so today. They don't leave here without talking to me or to Adam or Jim or, or somebody else here to, to, to ask more questions about what it means to follow you, Lord. would love to see someone saved today, someone who realizes that, okay, I don't want to be destined for wrath. I want to be destined for eternal life with you, Jesus Christ. And we don't respond just because of fear of the coming day of the Lord. Uh, yes, it is a fearful thing, as we talked about even last week, to fall in the hands of the living God. But Lord, your kindness should lead us to repentance. What you did on that cross by taking all of our sin, the sin of the entire world, you took upon the cross so that we can be forgiven. So that we can be declared righteous before you. So that we can have a crown of righteousness. Not a crown that we have earned on our own, but a crown that you have earned on the cross. That you earned throughout eternity, living a sinless, perfect life. As you came to earth and never sinned never messed up, never did anything wrong, but yet took the unjust punishment for the just. Like the, we deserved it. It would have been just if we went there. But God was pleased to allow you to suffer, Lord Jesus, in our place. 
And you were pleased to do that. And we just thank you so much that you were willing to do that for us, God. Lord, if anyone here does not know you, may they put their faith and their trust in you. As we get ready to do communion here in a little bit, I just pray that we take some time now to just reflect on our hearts. And if anyone needs to talk about their eternity, I would love to do so. Amen.